is the number one movie in America. And now, it's shattering box office records around the world. Now, it's the number one movie in the world. Welcome to the number one movie podcast, where we review the highest grossing films from each year. My name is Brian Gogan, and with me in the Pat Jason Theater today is Eric. Hello, Eric. How are you doing? Excellent, Brian. Excellent. And Freddie Pinion. How's it going, Freddie? I can't wait to get drunk. Yes. I've already drinking my bourbon. I'm oh, ready. God. So, so if you hear me slurring, I'm just letting you know this Freddie, is, what is where it comes from. <laughs> Frank, it's just yeah, we are straight all up, Evans Williams. Jeez. Straight up, like a real man. The movie we're reviewing today is the highest grossing film of 1975. It was made on a budget of $9 million and shot over a period of 159 days. By the end of its initial box office run, which is kind of hard to figure out for films going this far back, the movie had made $123.1 million. And it's the first film to break $100 million. But I looked into this, and it's in U.S. rentals, which is like the money that directly went to Universal Studios after theaters took their cut and everybody took their cut. That's like the groundbreaking $100 million mark that it passed. Uh, it's directed by Steven Spielberg and stars Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfus, and Robert Shaw. We are talking about Jaws. When did you guys first see this movie? Because this movie's older than all of us. Yep. We were all born well after it came out. I saw it. I, I was a kid. I don't remember how old I was. And just my dad, he's like, hey, you should watch this movie. And man, I mean, it, it scared me, but he was telling me a story how it scared people then. I just remember being so like, wow, like movies can do this. Because this was actually it was I remember when Jurassic Park came out and I was going back to rewatching all of Spielberg's movies because Jurassic Park was the first movie. I'm like, OK. I'm starting to notice directors' names, you know, because I think I was like 10 or 11 at that time. And just being like floored of how somebody can make a movie like this. Like it, it couldn't comprehend in my head, mm-hmm. but it was at home. Yeah. Not the ideal way to watch well, Jaws, right, for the first time, but, but that's, how we all that's it, a VHS, it. Yeah. right? It's great. You the, the trailers before that. Which I think it gives almost more power to the film that I also, I mean, Speaking of Jurassic Park, I watched that for the first time on VHS, probably full-frame format, right? Uh, And yet it speaks to the power of these films that even in that format, which when we look back now, it's just like it feels like you're watching a movie through gauze, right? It just speaks to the power of these films that even then, through that lens, on that format, spectacular cinema. When did you first see it, Eric? Late Bloomer. It was kind of a blind spot for me. Had been a fan of Spielberg, had grew up on a healthy diet of, you know, the um, the three wise men, uh, Lucas, Zemeckis, and Spielberg. Mm-hmm. So Back to the Future, Star Wars, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, Jurassic Park, all part of my, my diet. So I don't think I'd ever seen it. And I think War of the Worlds was coming out, Spielberg's version of it with Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. And I think, I was like, oh yeah, I should watch his monster movies. I've seen Jurassic Park how many times? I've never seen Jaws. And so I think I borrowed the DVD from a friend. Watched it in an afternoon, and yeah, it was one of those delightful screenings where you realize this classic that everyone's been talking about or you've heard is just as good as everyone says it is. Just as good. Uh, and it's always very rewarding when you, you feel that, uh, when you watch one of those classics and that you are catching up with. Yeah. that's. I think I probably didn't like appreciate Jaws until... War of the Worlds, same story, going back, re-watching it. We may have even watched it together. 
I'm not, Maybe. I, I don't remember for sure. But I think I'd seen it probably when I was 9 or 10 or so because my family, my brother and sister and I and some of our other cousins would all go and sleep over at my cousin's house. And my aunt, she worked at a movie theater for a long time. So the reason I've seen a lot of movies, a lot of these blockbusters, is her. Because she had a pretty big movie collection. She had a ton of VHSs. And for whatever reason, we would watch Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And so I saw that movie like a dozen times when I was a kid, which is a weird movie for us all to be obsessed with. But I'm pretty sure at some point in there, I was like, oh, I haven't seen Jaws. And my aunt was like, well, you need to sit down. And watch it because it's the same director as Close Encounters. And I didn't like, I didn't even put together the whole Spielberg thing. I knew he had done those hits back when, and I knew he had done Indiana Jones, but I don't think I realized he was the Jurassic Park guy also until like Catch Me If You Can came out. And I was like, who is this guy? And I really looked at his whole career. But I think I saw Jaws then and was like terrified. Uh, I didn't want to go in the swimming pool afterwards because there might be sharks. Uh, But then probably in high school I saw it again and was like, oh, I understand what they mean when they call films classics. There's a few movies that you'll have a conversation with somebody and they're like, what? You haven't seen that? We're going to my house right now and you Mm -hmm. have to watch that, you know? And Jaws is definitely like one of those movies. But that when you see that image of Jaws on that VHS cover of the shark... And the little tiny person, and you're like, what is that? You know, oh, that yeah. It's just so captivating. Mm-hmm. And it's so, like, B-horror movie-ish, but elevated. Well, yeah. One, the VHS era is the golden age of cover art. Right. Because oh, yeah. you could put the poster on the VHS really easily. Yeah. And so it was just like this aim with every poster to make it really capture you, and you could put it right on the VHS. But Jaws, the poster, is... One of the best of all time. Yeah. So good. I, I was reading about the po- of them designing the poster, and they were coming up with all these different ideas, and the pro- they kept saying the problem that they had was they wanted to see the teeth of the shark, because that would really grab people's attention. But if m- most of the time that you profile a shark, it's on the side, and you're looking at it, and you don't really see the teeth there. You can't really see them all. You would only see them on the side and stuff. Yeah. And they tried various designs like that and trying to make it work. And eventually one of them's like, well, why don't we just look at it from underneath? And went from there and it evolved to basically the shark coming up on the huh. swimmer, yeah. which is brilliant. It's, yeah. And so it's just like solving this problem of getting the most teeth into the poster right. is how we got this great poster. So this movie starts underwater. And the first thing you notice is John Williams. He's in the water? He's in the water. Oh, okay. He's a little it does baton. set up. I do think it, it, it helpfully sets up their idea that we're going to have like shark vision, mm-hmm. and that this music, when you hear it, is going to indicate that you are currently, you know, in the presence of the shark, and it's swimming around. Susan Bacalini plays Chrissy, a beachgoer partying, and she runs off into the water while her drunk boyfriend or paramour uh, passes out. It's so brilliant because you don't think 
about starting a movie this way. But uh, of course, it makes sense because it's a horror movie. Somebody's got to die, yeah. you know. But to start it underneath the water, you know, and it's just like how it cuts away and it's dark. You're like you can't, you kind of can't see her. Can you kind of can't can you know? And how the music just escalates. You're like sucked in immediately because mm-hmm. from that moment on, you're like, I buy whatever this movie's gonna sell me. Absolutely. You know the way yeah. she's acting, like. <gasps> Oh, yeah. No. The uh, the sound design of the music cutting just as she goes underwater yeah. is so, so powerful. And and the this opening, it is somebody who is very confident in what they're doing. I mean, how old was Spielberg at the time? I thought you meant Chrissy. Oh. <laughs> She's yeah, a good Spielberg. Spielberg was yes, like Spielberg. 20, 27 when yeah. he directed this movie. And it's like... Which is insane. And all the like... Uh, what have I done? Yeah, all the mishaps <laughs> and all that. I mean, we'll get to that later of all the craziness that happened on set. But when you're watching it, you're like, I trust this person because this person is very confident in their filmmaking that when you're watching it you're like how does somebody come up with this i that's the whole movie for me is like how do you do this i totally agree that uh the actress sells the shark she sells sells that opening so well yeah because we don't see the shark and you know the it's the famous shark didn't work stuff Mm -hmm. but her reaction to what's going on is just terrifying. I am just, I am more terrified because we can't see what's attacking her, but we can see how horrible it is uh, through her reaction. It's it's still the scariest part for me too because I go to uh, to the beach once a year, and I I swim out pretty far out there, you know, and sometimes I have that that scene in my head because I'm like, there's something underneath me. Right. I don't want to know what it is. Ignorance is bliss. Mm-hmm. But then the moment I start thinking of Jaws, I'm like, all right, I'm done swimming for. I'm gonna go. Absolutely. Tan. I'm gonna go tan. I don't for like the beach very much <laughs> right. for many reasons. One of them being, and especially most of the beaches I've ever been to are the California beaches, yeah. and there's often a bunch of seaweed and stuff, right, yeah. and it brushes by your leg, and I was like, nope, I'm out of here. Yeah. Every time the first seaweed that brushes, I'm like, that's a shark. I'm out of here. Yeah, I think I'm gonna die one of these days because my brother and I, we what we do is we swim out, swim out, and we see a big wave, and we just hold our breath and let the wave take us back. Mm-hmm. Now this image, as I'm going back, a shark just gets me. <laughs> I always I'm just lying. I always, and it's they do it in Jaws as well. But I always the image I get is I'm in a lake or the ocean or whatever. I suddenly see myself in like a bird's eye view, and I just see like massive jaws just encompassing me and just mm-hmm. eating me. <laughs> right. Well, I have a fun fact about uh, Susan Baccalini, who played Chrissy in the movie, because she was like a stunt woman, did a lot of water stuff in movies, but she also trained animals that were in movies. And Peter Mayhew, uh, before he passed away, yeah, tweeted out a picture signed of Ben Burt recording Susan Baccalini's bear. And apparently she had a bear that the they recorded and the noises it made were used for Chewbacca. And she signed a picture of it and gave it to him. That's amazing. Which I think is really crazy. That's amazing. What a crazy connection. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Same universe. 
Mm-hmm. Same universe. <laughs> so then Brody gets called in. They find the body, and Brody documents it as a shark attack. So first off, just this movie is the fine art of finding the story through chaos. These people feel real. The married couple feel real. There's years behind them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, their struggles in their present day. Uh, but this movie is such a fine art of letting those naturalistic moments happening, but without ever really boring you. Like he finds out uh, that it's a, that's a shark attack. He goes to the store. He's running around trying to get signs of, like, we got to close the beach. Where are the signs? He's yelling at people. People are talking over him. I think when we first meet him, there's two fo- or there's two phones for some reason. He picks up one. Yeah. I assume it's his personal. He's got a police phone and yeah. a personal and phone. Yeah, and he, like, puts it back. Just the kids are yelling. All of it is so good. But yeah. he goes to get, like, get signs together to uh, paint, you know, beach closed. And I'm sure it was a blooper that... Verna Fields and Spielberg were like, we got to keep that in. It's just, it's it's too perfect. It's imperfect. It's perfect because right. it's imperfect. There is, there's a lot of stuff in this movie where you have a character and we're watching them, we're focused on them while everything else is happening in the background. And there's like a million conversations. It's like a Robert Altman film. Yeah. Where there's lots of noise going on all the time. And I feel like that had to be Spielberg. Like that be. couldn't have been in the script. Yeah, because even when he's this moment I'm talking about where he goes to grab a paintbrush out of a cup and it falls and spills, and you can see Roy Scheider's actual reaction there. Mm-hmm. But then he like pushes the sign to the deputy and is like, hey, this needs to happen. But then that guy tells the mayor over the course of like over the sound of a parade happening. It's it, you hit it right there, Robert Altman style. And the way the, the this movie distributes information, I think, is really understated he sees the body and then he's writing up the report while he's yelling about beach signs we don't actually hear him say shark attack for a while right. but immediately it's seen typed up on the typewriter shark attack where mm-hmm. that's now a fact that is in brody's brain as a fact and everything that comes after that is because of that information how this movie distributes its story uh and its information is i think at the core of its brilliance. I totally agree. And I think Marcus Brody is one of the best developed characters in the history of film. And the way that we receive that information through other people talking, through little hints and clues that come along the way, that we learn he's this New York cop, he probably was in some sort of uh, incident and kind of got scared away from that scene mm-hmm. and came to this island. None of that is detailed. None of that is explicitly given to us. We just get it in little bits and pieces as we go along. And I think I think Roy Scheider is probably the best performance in the movie. I know a lot of people would go Robert Shaw for Quint, but I think Scheider is underrated in this movie. Shaw's the showiest. Right. But I agree. I just got to correct you. It's Martin Brody. Oh, what did I say? You said Marcus Brody. Oh, uh, Indy. Indy, Indy's uh, yeah. boss. I didn't even, that's funny. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, keep it in. Is anybody else a little, like, was anybody else terrified by the crabs that are, like, eating Chrissy's body on the beach? A little bit. It's very disturbing. That really got me when I was young. I remember, like, being really freaked out by that, of just, like, seeing a hand, just because humans are so repulsed by it, and just that there are creatures that are, like, feeding on it and frenzying and excited to see it freaked me out. 
So Brody wants to close the beach. Mayor Vaughn, in that great one shot, tells him not to. Is Mayor Vaughn right or wrong at this point? Both. <laughs> Can I, he be both? I would argue he's totally right. That there's been one attack, we're not even 100% sure, and that it's, it's a community that depends on this beach business. And to make it a story by closing the beach could be really damaging. And they don't really have the information they need to, to make a wiser choice. Yeah, I think there's a lot about what Mayor Vaughn does that in practice, as a leader of the community, is correct. It speaks uh, volumes about the performance and the subtext that I think it's the way he does it that makes him a villain. Yeah, I think the moment for me he becomes a, a full out villain because he's the the tone is there where he puts the arm around Brody. There's the like you're not an islander kind of thing of like listen we've dealt with this a while. There's even something about his just very showy uh, blazer with the anchors on it, and you're just like this guy, <laughs> this guy. But I think it's uh, the moment he becomes a villain for me is when they're at the town hall meeting a little later and. He makes an announcement, and Martin Brody looks at him like, I didn't agree to that. Yeah. And he just sort of doesn't Still look. reluctant. He just doesn't even look at, at Brody. He just kind of looks elsewhere. The mayor's played by Murray Hamilton, which, interestingly, I see on his IMDb, he was Mr. Robinson in The Graduate. And he's also in, a, like, a Twilight Zone or wow. a gallery episode. I don't think I've ever put that together. I yeah. definitely have not put that together. Yeah. And now I'm hearing the, 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 like, the dread in his voice and Jaws. Mixed with the, like, my wife from the ground. Wow, that's crazy. I've never put that together. So on the technical aspect, there's a lot of directors that they're known for their, like, one takes, right? It's like mm-hmm. Afonso Curion, Alejandro Iñárritu, now Sam Mendes, right? We could just, on a Tarantino. Yeah. But Spielberg comes in, and he just always has these winners that are just, like, under a minute long, mm-hmm. and you don't even realize you're in it until you're, like, it's almost over. You're like, holy crap. Yeah. He does it so sly, and I don't understand why he doesn't make a big thing of it. But they're every single one of his movies, he has at least one. They're you know they're economical and they're great though. I would say sometimes they are pretty noticeable when he does a lot of action in the frame. So I the one I think of immediately actually is Jurassic Park when they first see the dinosaurs and they're talking, and then Sam Neill comes really into a close-up, and all of that, and he just, he's holding the camera in the same spot, and letting the actors move in and out of frame, Mm -hmm. and into close-up, and stuff. There's great ones in Schindler's List, too, and he does it all the time, and this one, where he's he's talking with the mayor going across the water, is all just, like, the camera is just in one spot, and the actors are moving around, and being pulled up close, it's that exact thing, where uh, his blocking is tremendous yes it's an amazing amount of like foresight of you know working with the actors and putting them where they need to be and to be at that age to like have that knowledge of doing that i just heard an interview with noah bomback interviewed by ben stiller on dga and noah bomback says the most important thing he's finally realizing is blocking yeah you know a lot of directors will lighting's my thing or production design right but he's like right now i'm really focused on blocking and I'm like, and no Bombax, what, like in his 30s, maybe 40s, 40s, I think. 40s right? 40s, yeah. yeah. But for Spielberg, I mean, if you go back like and look at seven, yeah. to, to be doing this, which is a hallmark of his. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an element to his one shots that are just about efficient filmmaking. That yeah. he's 
kind of famously will do more shots in a day than any other director, you know, other than like Clint Eastwood. Um, and I do think, though, that he doesn't get enough credit for the artistry of it. Because in Jaws, the one shots happen every time we talk to the mayor. Yep. So there is an element of artistry to it. He is trying to set a tone of don't look away when right. we're talking to the mayor because it happens when they're on the ferry. It happens when they're by the sign. It happens when they're in the hospital. You get these nice one shots mm-hmm. uh, that are great. Yeah. And you know, there, there's that famous video on YouTube that kind of goes through the, the, his artistry of doing oneers. Um, mm-hmm. The great point that video brings up is is that this is not a new trick that he he invented. Like this, really was designed in like kind of the film noir days of Hollywood to oh, yeah. get a scene done quickly. Uh, it seems like it takes longer, but you block it out. You work with the actors, and you can get the whole scene done in just a master. It's it's more than a master because it's a, mm-hmm. you're moving about, um, but it's economical. And at the end of the day, it probably saves a lot of time. Um, I also think. It's kind of the art of just letting your actors do their thing, letting yeah. them breathe, uh, and letting the scene and the pace of the scene breathe itself. Yeah, the, the one on the ferry is brilliant because we're moving. The mayor kind of pushes him into a, an, a Brody into a close-up, which in itself says so much about their characters. It's one of his most brilliant one-takes. We mentioned Verna Fields, and I feel like this is a point to highlight her and her editing that we go from the ferry scene and the mayor saying, we're going to keep the beaches open, it's going to be fine. Cut to Alex Kittner talking to his mom on the beach, asking to go into the water. Which is a great matchup mm-hmm. on a rewatch, because the first time you're watching this movie, it is totally benign. We are just cutting to the next scene. Yeah. The next time you watch this movie, you go, oh crap, That this is the moment. Mm-hmm. That the mom said yes and put the kid in the water. And right. he's about to get eaten by a shark. So there's moments like where I'm at home and I'm just like, ah, I don't want to watch a full movie, but I'll YouTube a scene. Mm-hmm. Right? And this is the scene for me that I always YouTube. Yeah, I love watching it play out from start to finish. You know, The suspense and the building of it is one of the best mm-hmm. horror sequences, I think, of all time. Yeah. He's he's using um, obviously there's there's a lot of kind of red herrings in there of like oh he thinks it's this but it's some screaming teenagers we think oh is that a fin no it's a guy in a wet cap and then he comes up and talks to him and that's the right. some bad hat Harry yeah he's using people that are walking across the beach as sort of a transition cut uh, or a match cut to the next thing and the next thing to kind of move closer and closer and closer to Brody. As each mm-hmm. person walks by, we get closer to them, and then we back out again. And then we get closer and closer. They even do a, a split diopter effect where um, one of the supporting characters is talking to him. We see him in focus, but really, we know Brody. We know he's looking at, and we're looking at, the water. Yeah. This is brilliant One filmmaking. of those movies in the filmmaking is so on point using the blocking, again, Spielberg's great strength. To make you lean in your chair to try to see over someone's shoulder on the screen. Yeah. But it's a movie. You yeah. can't you can't change your perspective. Right. But you're with Brody like, we need to watch the water. Something's going to happen. I can't even imagine how exciting this must have been. Like, shooting must have been a pain. 
because yeah. you have like three different three to five different film techniques that you're using mm -hmm. in one scene but imagine like splicing it together and sitting down and watching that as a daily it's like wow yeah, yeah. that would have been so cool it must there. have this scene this sequence must have been really fun to edit right yeah and put together and build but a pain suspense. in the ass to shoot but probably there was so yeah. much footage i'm sure well to filter through <laughs> More people than than is is really even logistically possible to walk in front of Brody yes. to obscure his his view. Um, but again, the distribution of information. Um, so we we're introduced to a a man and his dog, and yeah. they're playing fetch. And then somewhere along the scene, between the 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 droning summer hit that's kind of crackling over the PA system and the the dull roar of the crowd. We real we cut back to the guy and we realize his dog's gone, mm -hmm. and we don't really see what happened to the dog. We never even see if the dog got eaten. We don't really right. know necessarily. But it's our first sign of trouble. Yeah, and I think we cut to the. I think it's after the chaos that we cut back to the, mm -hmm. the stick in the water. Um, but that's brilliant that it just it kind of plants that seed, puts it yeah. in there, and then of course we all know what happens. The Kittner kid is gone. Yeah, he gets I eaten love up. I think that this is, is another place to really highlight John Williams because it's yeah. reportedly in interviews, uh, Spielberg says it was really his idea to not use the theme unless the shark was really there, to not use that uh, that motif, the two-note motif. And that's, we see that the dog is kind of gone, the guy's mm -hmm. calling for him, mm -hmm. and cut to underwater, and the theme starts. Mm -hmm. And it's the first part where we get conditioned ah. to that. Because we have a few false alarms with bad hat yeah. Harry and all of that. Right. That, oh, the shark is really here now. And it pays off several times later to create some fantastic scares where, you know, you know the shark is there when you can't see it. Or, like, later on the orca, they're, you know, hanging off the boat and the shark surprises them. Yeah. And it's so shocking because we didn't get any warning from the score or anything like that. That's a really good point. Yeah. It really sets up some brilliant work. On John Williams' part, I think. Right. And for Spielberg to be at that age, to hold off, like, I'm going to use this vertical shot. I don't know what you call that shot, you know. Uh, um, uh, it's a push zoom or zoom right. push. I call yeah. it, I'm sure. Look, oh, vertigo. vertigo. Yeah. I, I think it's a vertical. I'm no, like, uh, vertigo. Vertigo shot. Um, I think yeah. we now call it the Jaws shot. Right. I, right. I think yeah. that's in film yeah. schools. They, yeah. they call it the Jaws shot. Um, But it's just like. Nowadays, people, like, even including myself, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do this one take because it's cool to do it, you know. But back then, they would, like, know it's purposeful. So the fact that Spielberg's like, I want to use this shot, but I want to wait until it's very important. And there's that video essay of, like, the Spielberg face or whatever. Yeah. And we see Scheider's face, you know, reaction uh -huh. to that. But it's just so brilliant. Like, it's pushing in, and but it's pulling, zooming out. Yeah, yeah. And you're in that in that moment, and then it cuts to that shark, and you just see like the fin, and you're like, "What it's is happening? Horrifying. What is happening?" I over don't there? even know how they yeah. shot that because the boy is yeah. like flailing yeah. in the water, yeah. And you see the shark fins, and you see how there's blood gushing yeah. everywhere. That is terrifying. I can't so... believe this movie is PG. Yeah, it is another like the shark isn't quite working how it's supposed to be working. Because mm -hmm. I'm sure. There was a planned shot to have the, the shark come up and yada yada. But again, it's another moment that probably was saved because the shark wasn't working. Yeah. But what I love even more is, again, brilliance through chaos of 
we don't get like cut to some blonde screaming into the camera or whatnot. It's it feels how it would happen in real life of wait, did that just like we kind of slow we watch everyone slowly yeah. get up and like wait wait a minute. What? That vantage point that we watch it from Brody's vantage point that mm-hmm. we don't get to watch the shark do this. It is like catching it out of the corner of your eye, even yeah. though you're looking right at it. Yeah. Because it's so alarming that you don't know what you're even seeing. Right. And then that that zoom, the Jaws shot, mm-hmm. really just nails it to your gut. The, just the terror that, yes, you did just watch a little boy get eaten by a shark. Yeah. Now, going back to your point, Eric, mm-hmm. on that... It was like Bruce was not working. The name of the shark is Bruce. Wasn't working, so this is how they improvised. Does it make you a little bit sad now that we're just like, well, we'll fix it in post. You yes. know, like, we'll do... We don't get... We're not creative anymore, right? It's like, well, let's just fix this here and now. Right. You know? Definitely. Because imagine if that movie was shot now. Like, we would have saw the shark and... Yep. And, it, yeah, it's called The Meg. And yeah. you see the shark a lot. <laughs> you see two. Yeah. Spoiler. So after that, the beach erupts into chaos. Mm-hmm. Everyone's running around, getting out of the water. And then again, excellent distribution of information. Miss Kittner, the first person we saw on the scene, as you pointed out, is calling for her son. Because we're not sure which kid it was. We're right. We're not sure at that point. Yeah. We only know the Kittner kid because of the rest of the movie. And she looks around and we don't see the kid. We don't see any of it. We just see the floaty device that he was on, the floating raft that he was on, wash up with that remnants of blood onto the beach shore. Great distribution of information. Confirmation. Yeah. It is, I have another interesting fact, that uh, the events of Jaws are loosely based on shark attacks at the Jersey Beach in 1916, which are uh, mentioned Mm -hmm. later in the film. Those attacks are thought to have been committed by a great white shark, and the first the shark first killed a swimmer, then a dog, and then a boy, uh, and it caused a lot of panic. And like even Woodrow Wilson at the time had to have like a cabinet meeting about it. Weird. Yeah. But so like up until this point, that's all sort of based on real life events right. that occurred. Yeah. Crazy. So then the town's got to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Again. Excellent distribution of information. Like, I'm going to keep saying it about this movie because it really is. Miss Kittner puts out a bounty on the shark. Yeah. Which is sort of the really the catalyst to the rest of the plot. But it it's is. done off of, off screen. It's two people talking over a flyer that's on, mm-hmm. like, a community cork board somewhere um, about how she put a bounty out on the, on the shark. Someone's got to kill the shark. And the town's got to do something about it. Um, but that information is given off screen. It's given to us, but that that scene is off screen, which I think right. just pushes us forward. We don't in this movie at no point do we really have a audience character to steal your phrase, Eric, from the movie Inception. No Ariadne character. I just think it's such a unique name that we should all call it yeah. the Ariadne. It's the character that is the audience. They just mm-hmm. ask stupid questions so that we can explain the plot of the film to the character it happens a lot in uh the tv show the west wing also yes uh and it's this movie doesn't really have that like brody a few times is the guy who doesn't know later in the film about sharks but here we don't have any scene 
where somebody's going, what's the reward for it? Uh, and it's it's just two people talking. Right. I want to get this reward. So we're pushed into this town hall meeting that's in a, you know, it's the summer, so it's in a classroom. So what? Right. how many minutes are we into the movie at this point? I, I don't know, but it's got to be like... 30 minutes. Kit, no, so I, I wrote it down when we did our rewatch. Ah. I can't believe the Kitner Kid scene is 11 minutes in. 11 minutes into the movie. Just okay. about. So to piggyback on what Eric has been saying in this film, the distribution of information is yes. amazing. Because we've gotten so much of it. We have really established our main character, Brody. We have established the situation that by the time we get to the town meeting... I understand the politics of what's going on. I know the different sides. I know the business owners. I know the terrified townsfolk. I know the interests mm-hmm. and everything, the, the police, the politicians. It's amazing that so much has been covered in so little time. So, and this brings us to where we're at right now. And before you describe the scene, Brian... Again, this is another masterful thing that Spielberg does is he's great at picking one character that he like introduces, right? We think of John Hammond from Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. Tom Hanks from Catch Me If You Can. Like he just like he'll shoot it in a certain way. Henry um, Jones, you know, he comes out of the like the dark into the yeah. light, you know. How he introduces Robert Shaw. He he sort of and we should say that like Robert Shaw was a get for this movie. He Definitely. really was. because yeah. uh, it's it's Spielberg's like wink to the audience when he knows he has a really good celebrity. But also, I've read rumors that Charlton Heston was willing to do the role. And I think it was Quint that he was in for. And to Spielberg's credit, he said no to him. He was wow. like, you're not the right guy. And apparently Heston was pissed about it. He was like, who's this nobody telling me right. I can't be in their movie? Uh, and they went with Shaw. Hmm. You just hear the screeching on the chalkboard, and you're just mm. like, "There's a character we're all gonna like pay attention and love yeah. to for the rest of the movie." It is this movie. It, we can talk about it later about its like impact on pop culture, mm-hmm. but there's so many parts of this movie that you would describe life with. Uh, you could describe other movies with the Jaws shot, and then also I feel like I've heard many people in life say scratching your nails on the chalkboard like Quint from Jaws. Right. That this is a thing everybody remembers is yeah. his introduction in this film. And it's really like it's it's an archetype that we we've seen before. He's almost it occurs to me now, he's almost treated like the the town witch where they're all just kinda everyone turns, everyone's body language says everything we need to know about Quint, where they all get quiet of like, don't want to interrupt this guy. This mm-hmm. guy's crazy. Uh, and then just when he finishes his whole speech, and Mayor Vaughn just, we'll, we'll, we'll take that under advisement. Thank you very much, Mr. Quint. We'll, uh, we'll take it under advisement. So after the town hall meeting, the town erupts, trying to go after this shark. We have a, a fun Spielberg montage where mm-hmm. we're cutting to all these different people and their, their eclectic styles of trying to capture the shark or kill it. Uh, and we're introduced to another character through chaos, in the middle yeah. of chaos. Uh, Richard Dreyfus, Spielberg's alter ego, and he is a oceanographer from Boston who's come in to help with the shark problem. Who's gonna <laughs> want to listen to a nerd? 
right? Yeah. Right. He is kind of the coolest version of, again, that archetype. Right. Because there's so much about Jaws that is like a 1950s B-movie. In the 50s, our scientists would look more like, well, like Mars Attacks makes fun of Pierce right. Brosnan. Yeah. A British guy yeah. with really nice parted hair, right. a pipe, and glasses. I've, I've always given, like, maybe too much credit to Jeff Goldblum for creating the snarky, cool nerd. Right. And, but Dreyfus here in Jaws is oh, yeah. really maybe the first one who's he's a cool guy. He's laid back. He's confident. Even what he's who wearing, he is. his style, yeah. it's pretty cool. And yeah. he's he's just a complete nerd. Right. He's a total science dork, and it's awesome. I always like the fact, and we find this out a little later in the movie about him, that he actually has a lot of money. Right. And he just does this oceanography thing, uh, and buys all this equipment because it's out of just his his interest. Yeah, it's um, a hobby. Which. A way much lesser film uh, sort of replays that. Uh, Lake Placid with the giant alligator, whatever. Oliver Platt plays a character that's much like that, but he's doing it for sort of the the uh, eccentric billionaire thrill. Whereas uh, Dreyfus's version of this is, is, I don't know, it's just so grounded. But I agree, there is an annoying quality to him, but it is that, that well, no, he's he's right. We get to hear all his little, like, Side comments of us, oh, they're gonna die. Yeah, they're gonna yeah. die. Great. <laughs> and I quips. love that stuff. So all these posses are going out. Yep. Trying to catch a shark, and uh, they Brody, catch one. Well, Brody takes Hooper to autopsy. Right. The do you girl. Guys, do you guys, when you watch older movies, do you think of Netflix now? Because I think like mm. if this was like a ten episode series i'm okay, like okay yeah. this is how when this episode would end you know yeah so i don't know because this mo- movie has so many things like that that you're like oh yeah this is part of the same movie because it just seems like different parts of a movie you know there are in this scene because our main characters are familiar with some of these guys that are going out there you feel like there's stories behind right, yeah. each of them exactly. right like we could meet their families so much and depth, learn about them know? yeah yeah I do think there's almost an immediate camaraderie between Brody and Hooper because they are both outsiders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is, you know, again, Brody typed it up on a typewriter. To him, it is a shark attack. Now, at this point in the movie, he absolutely knows that's what it is. And here's someone that he's hoping will talk some sense into the town, and yet it doesn't even help. I see that yeah. buddy cop movie. Oh, yeah. This does become kind of the point where I think. I was saying earlier that Vaughn, Mayor Vaughn, is kind of right in his initial diagnosis. And now we're seeing why Mayor Vaughn is the villain, because Brody is taking the wiser steps towards solving the problem. Right. Like the crowd way of solving the problem is, let's put a bounty and send out all our people and try to catch the shark with, you know, the Christmas roast. And Brody is like, no, let's call an expert who can come here and tell us what we're dealing with and how to solve the problem. Right. So they go to the corner mm-hmm. um, to, look, to look at the remains. And again, it's a brilliance in showing the terror through how Hooper looks at the remains. And yeah. He is stuttering. He's talking faster. He's like cutting himself off. Like, can you get me a glass of water, please? Uh, yes. Please don't touch that. Well, this is not a boat accident. It wasn't any propeller. It wasn't any coral reef. And it wasn't Jack the Ripper. It was a shark. His really shortness of breath and short statements. Yeah. 
is really well done. And I totally agree that it, that scene feels like it's missing the gore that you would expect. Right. That any other filmmaker would want a scare in that scene to make the audience jump and not make it a, a dramatic point. But we never see the remains. We just get them described, and the description is really freaky. This, right. You know, just a torso, and uh, we he picks up a leg. I think we see that. But No, you're absolutely right, because this is the time in a horror movie. Because how, how much time has passed, we probably don't know this, from the shark attack to this moment, mm-hmm. there hasn't been anything. So this is part of the horror movie. It's like, okay, we need another jump scare. Yeah. But not that he's holding it back, but he's just like, normally we do get like, a gross out thing, you know, like a body falls out of yeah. an open locker room or whatever, you know. And I love how Spielberg refrains from that. Hooper's such a brilliant character. Yeah, because it gives it immediately gives Hooper another dimension mm-hmm. that we see him being snarky. He seems to know what he's doing. He's an expert. And then once he really gets, once he's got like skin in the game, once he's been exposed to something real, he's trying to maintain his composure right but he kind of can't it's still a little too shocking for him yeah then we leave the autopsy mm-hmm. and the posse is some posse has caught a shark yep and because he's done this autopsy he knows he's measuring the jaw and everything uh knows it's the wrong shark which we kind of as an audience know too but i love uh roy scheider in the scene when he hears that they've caught a shark, just the elation that comes yeah. over his face, that he's just like, oh, thank goodness, we, we did it. And he's so happy. And that contrasts so well with the end of this scene where Miss Kittner comes up and is slapping him. The mayor gives such a, like, weak condolence to him or a kind of weak... Um, um... The, the mayor kind of dismisses her attack yeah. on him yeah. with a saying, I'm sorry, Brody, she's wrong. And... But what a noble character. He doesn't, like, turn and go, but the mayor, guys, uh, just kind of takes it and takes it home with them. Yeah. Now, this is, would if this was really happening, would we go to the mayor? Would Brody's role, what is he again? The police chief. Yeah, would chief he go police? to the mayor for the, in this situation in real life? Well, the mayor kind of comes to him. Right? Because right. Brody just immediately makes the call to yeah. shut down the beaches, and then the mayor comes to him. and He's on the ferry. He's and on the, the mayor. Ferry, like, right. he's been summoned, right? And, yeah. and, but he's on the ferry, but the mayor's like, hang on one second. And they drive the whole right. car yeah. onto the ferry. So the mayor tracks him down because the deputy yeah. is the one that tells the mayor. Right. Do you think the guys who caught the, the wrong shark, did they get the $3,000 from Mrs. Kittner? I've never thought about that. Yeah. I mean, it is debunked immediately with the, like, well, it's this and this. Well, what? <laughs> the guy who did one right? of those big paycheck things. Yeah. Because they immediately are like, what are That's you trying funny. to do? We're, you know, we got this money. Uh, and and they go and, and you know, autopsy the shark and everything. They, they uh, go out on the boat. But there's another attack that happens seemingly many days later. Right, like it's it's not immediate that the attack comes again. Right. So I wonder if they paid, you know, the they next day. Have, yeah. Right. These guys got three thousand dollars. They have to give it or, back. Or or is it a thing? They're like, well, you have two weeks. We have to wait two weeks, and if there's no more, yeah, then you get your paycheck. Uh, so she slaps him. He takes his guilt home, and then we get 
uh, one of the most Spielbergian Spielberg scenes, and and really, uh, aside from all the creature feature stuff, my favorite scene in the movie. Yeah, um, I think it is the uniquely it's Spielberg's touch because mm-hmm. we see it over and over again in his later movies, his big blockbuster action films where he allows the story to pause mm-hmm. so that our characters can process their emotions. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, like in Jurassic Park when they go in the tree and sleep and, you know, they, we take a breath and process what's been happening. And it yields this beautiful scene between Brody and his son. But before you guys rightfully gush over it, me watching as a kid, I was not a fan of this because I'm like boring. It is the boring part. part but I didn't kid. appreciate it until I was an adult watching it when I was in college and learning about film. I'm like, wow, yeah, you would take time out of this movie that feels like it's moving so quick, mm-hmm. action packed, mm-hmm. and slow it down for this one moment. These, Pretty brilliant. Yeah, these decisions are the yeah. decisions that allow Spielberg's movies to grow up with their audience. Right. Right. So you can see it as a kid and get all the stuff you're supposed to get. And then rewatch it later in high school, like yeah. you, you know, and get this much deeper character study. Yeah, it's usually the adult has to pull a kid aside and say, you know, everything's gonna be okay. The monsters mm-hmm. can't get us here. And here is a movie that again focuses more on character than scares. Um, it's it's the real weight of this character and the responsibility that this this man has, and it's a kid, his own kid through his gesture even if he doesn't exactly know what he's doing the kid is relieving him of that that responsibility or that weight for just a couple moments right and it's really beautiful but also letting him process a little bit of what's going on because he can get a little bit into the mindset of mrs gettner and he in that moment Mm-hmm. feeling that connection to his son I think also gives us this could have been his boy yeah. that died and this this is a problem and it's all working towards and setting up the this isn't over right because you know the shark got caught that you know they think maybe isn't the one right and I I bet I haven't read the novel but it uh, kind of reminds me a little bit of no country for old men where Lou Ellen finds the money and there's a guy in the car who's still alive and he leaves with the money and in the movie he's laying in bed mm-hmm. and says, okay, and gets up and we see him go back because yeah. he can't, he, he's got to do something. He has to bring water to that guy and that's that sets up his demise. And that right. feels like a real literary kind of character yeah. where that they're kind of punished for that goodness. Right. And I think in the book... Uh, Hooper is killed. And I think in the original mm-hmm. design of the movie, he was supposed to die in the cage at the end. Right. But I feel like we didn't get that scene, but you could, you can imagine it because Hooper comes over with a bottle of wine on a mission to go and autopsy the shark, go and right. cut it open and see if it's actually the one because he can't just let it go. Like his responsibility is over. He can leave. Uh, but he needs to know for his own sake. Well, and again, this is another director trademark where we see Spielberg. This is the beginning of him working with kids and yeah. how masterful he is at that, you mm-hmm. know, and just the scene of how to shoot them and the right level and all that. It's like 
it's so cool just to see like this i don't i don't think there was any before that you know but this was the start of his run with that you know so hooper comes over and it's a great line there's a knock at the door and yeah. and mrs brody answers the door and he's like i'd like to speak to your husband she says so would i uh there's great she has great lines in this movie yeah she does i like her earlier line of you want to get drunk and fool around yeah it's really Just, good what a great marriage yeah it, it reminds me of um your marriage he <laughs> <laughs> my third marriage no um uh did he did Spielberg, no he didn't help write this I'm sure he did rewrites. No. I'm sure he did like little well, there's, touches. There's a story that, or what Spielberg says is he got the film, he was hired to do the film, and he immediately went and wrote a screenplay that he knew he wasn't going to use because he knew he wasn't good enough to write this movie. But he just wanted to go through the exercise of it to really figure out the story and really figure out the angle to approach the film. And then hired Carl Gottlieb, I think, to, yeah. to actually write the screenplay. Okay. Um, but I do think he probably, Gottlieb, I think, is mostly a comedy writer. Yeah. So I do think some of these lines, these clever quips and stuff, is really his talent. Okay. Because the, the marriage in this, and Spielberg is, is usually really good at this, uh, making uh, these domestic dynamics really believable. Uh, he wrote Poltergeist, and just, yeah. there's, uh, I think there's, there's definitely a connective tissue between uh, that family. And the uh, and the Brodies, um, just there's I a agree. scene. There's a scene in Poltergeist where they're just like pulling out weed. <laughs> just like, yeah. you want to get high. He's really modernizing yeah. marriages for yeah. the time that he's yes. making these films in. Yes, um, and then of course, yeah, to the comedy. To speak of the comedy, Brody pouring the wine and just kind of continuing with it, filling a glass, filling like a normal <laughs> you let glass. That breathe? <laughs> yeah, top. Yeah, you want to let that breathe. And then he pours more, and then he just kind of looks up at them like, oh, yeah, no. Yeah, and, and gives he, normal pours to everybody. You no, know, he starts yeah. to pour a lot for Hooper, and he goes, Hooper puts his finger Yeah, it's Yeah, it's great. It's a wonderful dynamic, and you can feel the chemistry between the actors, that they are really playing off each other, and they are really like being generous with each other, giving each other moments to shine. Uh, they go and autopsy this shark. They find Louisiana plates. It's no good, and they go out. They they're like they're kind of on the hunt themselves mm-hmm. on Hooper's boat, and they discover Ben Gardner's boat, where the story is Spielberg wanted one more scare. So the last thing they filmed was that Ben Gardner's head uh, in the water that they in like his friend's pool. They they shot it yeah. so that he get one more big scare into the movie. That's funny. Yeah. And yeah. it is a big scare. Oh, I get scared every great. time. It's great. Because you don't John remember. Williams is hitting. The scene is hitting. You don't, oh, you never quite remember when it's going to pop up. Um, it's also one of my favorite, probably my favorite line in the whole movie. Doesn't make much sense for a guy who hates the water to live on an island either. It's only an island if you look at it from the water. That makes a lot of sense. We get another great one shot with the mayor. Uh, now that they've found this evidence, Hooper's found evidence that it's a great white, and they bring it to the mayor by the Amity sign, which has been graffitied, and the mayor wants, you know, an investigation into the graffiti, uh, but and still isn't convinced. Tim, the mayor is one of those like annoying characters, like you see in like Ford versus Ferrari. Yeah, you know, it's just like just 
oh, get out of here. You yeah. know? So many characters yeah. feel inspired yeah. by the exactly. mayor from You're just Jaws. Like, what is that that movie Ghostbusters the new one? Oh man, yeah. No matter what your opinion <laughs> of the movie is, the best line in that movie is "Never compare me to the mayor in Jaws." <laughs> yeah, I just like that. Just like if if Brody is the benevolent and noble civil servant, the 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 mayor is like the the counterpoint to that of like mm-hmm. don't right. be like that mayor in Jaws. He was corrupt, and in fact, in the in the novel, uh, I do remember this about. Uh, reading up on the novel, which I've never read. Uh, apparently, there's a whole mob plot where the mayor is involved in the mob somehow. Okay. And there's kind of pressure from them to keep the beach Good open. Good cut. Uh, apparently. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's yeah. a whole other movie. I might be completely... <laughs> I'm the book. I might yeah. be... There's an audio version. Uh, One day they are going to... Netflix is going to make so a 10-part miniseries of this. So We're going to get... Starring, a full adaptation. Starring Jim Caviezel as yeah, yeah. Brody. That's <laughs> funny. Harrison Ford as Quint. That could happen. Great. And I, Timothy Shyamalan. I'll say this about recasting. And maybe maybe he's a little too old now, but maybe he's just right. That sometimes watching Quint, I was reminded of Michael Richards from Seinfeld. That weird. He could He could do it, I think. Uh, I I don't know if he's still canceled, but if uh, uh, I think he could do it, yeah. If we're allowed to talk about people, we can't talk about. Uh, yeah, I think we did a Dreamcast once, and I said Louis C.K. for Matt Hooper. Nice, just because that that frankness of just it's all canceled cast. Yeah, just just that frankness <laughs> of like. So what do we do? Well, you gotta you gotta kill the shark. Directed by Brian Singer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He That's perfect. <laughs> it's his favorite movie. His production company this is has called. To happen now. His production company is called Bad Hat Harry because of this film. Bad Kevin Spacey, his <laughs> chief Brody. Ooh, that one's bad. That one's bad. Uh, uh, produced, produced by, by Harry Weinstein. Weinstein. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's do this. I things that should happen. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Uh, so the mayor says no. And then we we move on to the next day at the beach, or no? That that it's like the Fourth of July weekend, is it not? All the tourists start yes. coming in. We get a big montage of all the tourists coming in on the on mm-hmm. the ferries, um, and no one's going in the water because they've all yeah. heard. They've all heard. And but you know, it seems like the Coast Guard has been called and everything. There's helicopters. There's there's a lot of surveillance mm-hmm. going on. Uh, and I do love the mayor going up to you know some group family he knows, telling him you got to get in the water. Someone needs to go in the water to get people to go and start having fun. And it's got to be a local so yeah. that the other people know. And just the death march for those people. Would you be uh-huh. that person? No, <laughs> I don't go in the water now when there aren't sharks. Yeah, <laughs> family goes into the water. People start to follow them. They feel it's okay. And it's kind of a rush into the water. Everybody's having fun, and there are a number of false alarms that happen. That's right. The kids are wearing the the, the fin. That one erupts into chaos. Guns um, pointed. Yeah, yeah, guns pointed at them. Which em. have not been, 20 years later, turned into walkie-talkies. By the way, uh, I just got the audiobook of Jaws. Perfect. I'm going to listen to it. it. He's on it. Uh, and then over in the pond area... Shallower part of the... Because uh, yes. uh, yeah. Brody tells his kids to go into the pond. Yes. He doesn't want them in the ocean. Uh, there is a guy... turns out to be a critical mistake. And there is a whole other movie 
about this creep that lives in Amityville. Absolutely. And he is waiting for the tourists to come in mm-hmm. uh, so he can prey on them. And this guy yeah. comes out in his boat rowing, sees the kids in the boat and goes, hey, guys. Yeah, they're in the middle of the water. I don't know. So who goes out? Who rows out? To a group of little boys playing and Kevin says, Spacey. are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But don't you at this point expect to be eaten by a shark if you're this guy rowing out to the little boys? And indeed he is. He is just, he's got no chance. Kill him. He's just like Kill. standing there like, what's going on? And it is. The shark just knocks him over. It is probably the most frightening shot of the yeah. shark for me. Like everyone says the. I totally agree. Scooping the, the chum into the water. But this yeah. one of just the overhead, the. Um, the bird's eye view shot of that shark. Yeah. This is where it's it kind of gets into the territory of like maybe it's a it's a little bit urban legend after the success of the film that the shark never worked because the shark pretty much works from this point on in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this scene, you really see it, and it's freaky. It's definitely, I think, the scariest shot of the shark. Just overhead, you see how big it is. It, uh, for the first time. It's funny that, that yeah, that the urban legend, whatever, the Hollywood myth, as I call mm-hmm. them, uh, is that the shark never worked. But to me, so many movies go out of their way <laughs> to just show <laughs> these creatures doing ridiculous things. I'm like, it's going to jump up and it's going to grab the helicopter and it's going to. Yeah. And this one to me is like, you, oh, you mean it was a shark? It was underwater mm-hmm. and we barely saw it. You ever been whale watching? You're like sitting out in the cold with a windbreaker and binoculars, and then you're all like, there. Right. Oh, you missed it. That's... I haven't because I find that terrifying. Oh, yeah. Sure. Because whales, too, they just come out out of nowhere. They're gigantic. Freaks me out. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning new things. Uh, but that, to me, is that's a shark. You barely mm. see it. So, yeah, I agree. This scene is probably the most terrifying with the shark. So... Erupts into chaos. Everyone runs around trying to get to the kids. It's Brody's kid this time that was at the center of the danger. Um, and he ends up in the hospital. Yeah. I do think it's a it's a great example of that Spielberg face of just the kid in the water. Mm-hmm. And we're like bombing and we're really at water level. Mm-hmm. And we see the kids just like he freezes. He just yeah. goes into complete panic. So kind of good performance coming from a little kid. Yeah. And yeah, because he's in shock, they take him to the hospital. Right, yeah. Um, and then there, uh, and it's a little hammy, but but uh, Brody pulls Mayor Vaughn aside. And he's like, all right, I have the contract here. You're gonna, which is another scene off, yeah. uh, a scene that's uh, off camera. Right. And apparently there was a contract drafted up or something. Uh, he's like, all right, you're going to sign this. We're going to pay Quint to kill the shark. Do it quick. Mm-hmm. And the mayor's a little hammy. I'm just like, my kid was out there, too. Ah. It is a little hammy. It is. As I think Tarantino has said, every movie's got a point where you go to the bathroom. 
Yeah. This is that point for me. That's funny. In this movie. It's a good scene. Yeah. But it is the scene. As a kid, it's the scene between the little boy and his father. Right. Sure. Yeah. Like you were saying. Now, this, it's like, all right, I know what's going on. Yeah. This is Quick the scene break. That, that definitely I, every time I watch the movie, I've forgotten about it. Yeah, I've forgotten that it's in the movie. Which is funny because it is, it is a big turning point in the film. But I think everyone, yeah. yeah. Anyways, it so, deli- it brings us into Act Two of the film. It sets up Act kind two. of because yeah, we're kind of far into the movie. Mm-hmm. But I do like that the movie, the plot goes as far as it really can, um, on shore, before it literally has to push these characters out into the ocean. Where yeah. we've dealt with the shark as much as we can. Mm-hmm. We've checked out boats. We've checked out bodies. We've secured the beaches. We've closed them. And really, uh, a lesser movie would be like, okay, what else? Let's get cannons and do that. Yeah. But this movie is like, no, we've got, we've done everything we can on shore. We have to push these characters out into the ocean, which is a really bold move. That yeah. that the whole second half of this movie, really, it's like the midpoint of the film. It really is Act One, Act Two. Yeah, it's two yeah. films. Yeah, put it's a play. Uh, the second act of this film is, in in play format is on a boat. Yeah. With these three characters. And odd that Quint is introduced in the first 20 minutes mm-hmm. and then nearly disappears. He kind of comes by to almost laugh at the townspeople because right. he kind of maybe knows when that. They catch the shark, the wrong shark. Yeah, he kind of. It's a funny scene. Yeah. Well, he has like yeah, a really bottle is. of whiskey and he's like. <laughs> right. He's like driving yeah. the boat and he's just like. Eh. <laughs> I do think that this movie, more so than a lot of other films that are kind of about disasters or monster movies uh this movie gets human nature a little more correct that an event happens everybody says don't overreact right don't another one happens and they're like okay let's do something about it and they think they solved the problem but experts know they haven't Mm -hmm. and nobody wants to listen to the experts and then it happens again and i just i like that this movie shows so like this is now our third major shark attack in the movie that is instigating the final effort the serious effort to Mm -hmm. actually do something about it and uh, you know other movies it's just like here's one inciting incident and now we're off and running oh i yeah i agree Mm -hmm. so we're now we're on the boat um well i love hiring quint i love this scene where we go to his House, his, I don't know what, what does it's Quint do? Yeah. Is he a fisherman with a vendetta against sharks? Or is he just like a full-time shark hunter? Is he just waiting for a contract with the Discovery Channel? He's got to be just a fisherman. What, yeah, he's what just... is this guy's life? Yeah, he's got to be, because he has a first mate that doesn't really talk. And as yeah. I understand, he, um, from the behind the scenes research, I did that actor. He's not an actor. He's just part of the, he's one of the townsfolk. Uh, he lives at Martha's Vineyard. Um, okay. But we don't really hear him say anything. And he, I think there's a deleted scene where he resigns. He's like, I'm not going out on that boat. Have fun. Bye. Yeah. Uh, that's why he stays behind. But I don't know. He sells moonshine and cooks right. shark jaws, I guess. Yeah. He's like a Tyler Durden. He does. He's making my <laughs> shark jaws. Yeah. Soup. He really, what if, <laughs> hot take, uh, what if Quint is, is not real? Not real. <laughs> Yeah. Quint is your <laughs> everlasting sense of adventure. 
Uh, yeah, but all that, and then the goodbye between um, Ms. Brody and Ellen. Ellen, right? Ellen, yeah, yeah Ellen, Ellen and, and Martin uh, is great. Um, and then they they get off on the boat. That's right. He he does the he's kind of testing Hooper of what do you know about this and this and this and this, and he throws him a rope. And he's like tie it, yeah. and Hooper does like oh my seamanship and yada yada ties it. He throws it back to Quint. Quint catches it and just immediately, just immediately throws it. it to the corner like, great, cool, I don't care. Yeah, and like grabs his hands. You got city hands, got boy. City hands. hands. Stay in your life. <laughs> it's, uh, and then great like rebuttal of just, I don't need to take this working class bullshit. Oh. Uh, it's so good. Yeah, I don't need any of this this uh, working class hero Yeah, stuff. that's it. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. does set up, like you were saying, Freddie, the butting heads of these two characters and you know according to legend both on and off screen yeah that really shines really makes the the dialogue pop i did i did notice the second half of the film it does seem to be a a, a theme that in each scene one of the men pushes another one pretty far like kind of inappropriately of just yeah uh, either ragging on them a little too much being a little too hard on them uh digging the knife a little too deep and then the other one, the third man, consoles them somehow. Right. Or kind of gives them a little bit of relief somehow. Yeah. Um, but they take turns doing it, which is right. really interesting. Like uh, with the chum when Brody's like, how about Hooper takes a turn? Yeah. yeah. Hooper and drives the boat. boat chief. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sort of defending. He defends him there. He yeah, defends like, Hooper. It's like, no, you. he has a job. He's proven yeah. that he can do that part. Yeah. Um, but that's great. But there's even a moment where Hooper yells at Brody of just like the tanks don't yeah. don't hurt the tanks. Uh-huh. Uh, and Quint comes to the rescue there, yeah. and he's like, like "Yeah, you let me know, me. and I'll help you tie it." Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it's great stuff. It's great stuff. That's totally true. And then we get that great scene. Uh, they're on the hunt, and uh, Quint realizes just a little bit of movement on the line. Hey! I got it! Yeah. I, once they find the shark, I think John Williams sets a new bar with the score. And I want to quote Hans Zimmer on this. Everybody goes, oh, Joss, it's just these two notes. It's not. It's, it, there's this amazing orchestral symphonic piece that takes place and is just being triggered by these two notes. Also said that he really saw this as a kind of sea chase, that it also had some humor, so the orchestra could be swashbuckling at times. Yeah. 
exactly mm-hmm. right. He, at this now the score turns, mm-hmm. and it sounds like they're pirates on right, the yeah. sea hunting yeah. the shark. Yeah, I would agree. Sometimes it feels like two movies. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. even bolder that at the end of the movie we don't really go back. Right, we, we never, know they yeah, go right, back, yeah. but we, yeah, only uh, beneath credits do we see them get back to the island. Right. Yeah. So then the shark's revealed, and it's brilliant. That's right. Yeah, and we get the line: this "You're going to need a bigger boat." This is another YouTube scene. Oh, this yeah. is another big YouTube. This is that scene that's in like every montage of classic films. Yep. And you got to wonder how proud Spielberg is of that, of just throwing the chum into the water and the shark comes out. And it, I don't even know how it happens. It's one of those things where I bet if you actually saw Roy Scheider snap into frame, yeah. you'd be like, no human moves like that. Yeah. But nope. it, it's so <laughs> yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, his face, it, the glasses. Yeah, oh. immediately yeah. your eyes go wide and your jaw drops and you're like, this, what is happening in this movie? I think when I see it in montages, I even like, ooh. Yeah, it immediately makes me ooh. want to watch the movie yeah. again. Ooh. Uh, and it's great how he just backs up yeah. into the yeah. cabin and says, you're going to need a bigger boat. I'm going to confess right here. I've never loved that line. I don't yeah. think it's a bad line, but yeah. I don't know. Like I said, I think there are so many, uh, so many more lines that are just just have a richness to it in this movie. Um, but I understand why it's the popular yeah. line. I completely understand why. I think it's a good. I think it's a good line to transition us into a little action and kind of set up that this shark is not going to go down easy. Yeah, right. and the, and that line was ad libbed. Yeah. You know, too. And it's like, I was trying to think when I was watching, I'm like, what line would I replace instead of that? Right. You know, but I think it just fits I, so I perfectly. I wonder what was in the script. Yeah. Does he not say anything? And I do think, like, Roy Scheider in that case, because it was ad-libbed, is getting a little extra credit because he says several times later in the movie that he's like, we got to go back to shore and get a bigger boat. Yeah. So it's, it is like in the script right, that yeah. he thinks they need a bigger boat. Yeah. And so I can understand like why <laughs> yeah. he throws it down in yeah. that moment because he knows his character is worried about that. Because yeah. it's even in that scene that we both admit is maybe the one error in the film uh-huh. where it was only this last viewing that I realized, oh, I think it's, it's purposely played off as a joke. Because he keeps saying, but we need a bigger boat, right? We're going to get a bigger boat? Yeah. And then there's that scene where after they, they've chased the shark for a bit, and he kind of turns around and goes, yeah, but we're going to get a bigger boat. And it just crossfades to the next scene. Like, just abruptly crossfades yeah. to the next scene and, like, cuts off his dialogue. It's only the last screening that I, I kind of realized, oh, it's played up as a joke because he's saying it one more time. It's the right. rule It's the rule of threes. It's the comedic rule of threes. Yeah. I think it's the fourth time he says it. But, yeah. but I wonder when, you know, when he's doing the chum thing, I wonder if they told him when it was going to happen, you know, if that was right. like, if they just surprised him. Like, all those things go through my head when you watch it. Like, at least the first time, like, Spielberg's yeah. like, okay, do it now, yeah. you know? Cause if his, they could. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it was a surprise because the, he's just actually <laughs> waiting for the shark to work and do that. Right. And yeah. maybe he was thinking, okay, it's not working. And I'll he's just still go doing, with the scene. <laughs> That's yeah, the, it's it's a great scene, and it's interesting. I've just thought uh, I've just thought of this now that Hooper goes and he gets like some sort of tracking device to attach to one of these buoys that they're gonna attach to the shark. 
And that really never pays off at any point. They don't actually use any device to track the shark. The barrels. Right. The yeah, barrels do the it. Barrels. But whatever Hooper wanted to add to the barrels, that's like right. yeah. building the tension. of Is he going to get this knot out? And he's like, don't wait for me. And uh, the, we oh, never actually used the trackers. Because is that when the barrel like flies from the front of the ship? And it's like that impossible shot of like, Today it would be CGI, yeah. but the barrel flies and Hoop, uh, not Hooper, Brody, like ducks out of way. But it's yeah. a really cool action and shot. His glasses yeah. come off. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how they did it because it breaks the window. Right. And everything. It, it's a great shot. Underappreciated shot. Yeah. Um, so all this tension happens and they think they got it in control. He's on the chase, but there's a lull. Again, the movie yeah. stops mm-hmm. dead in its tracks. But none of the pacing is really diminished. Um, but it stops to give us character. And I think this is if the movie's real conflict was people from the city and people from rural America, if they can, you know, somehow learn to get along and find their commonalities and a common enemy in this case, um, if they can figure that out, then they can solve those problems. That's really yeah. where this is the end of Act Three or Act Two, rather, uh, where mm-hmm. these men are finally able to kind of put their differences aside and just realize we all have our own scars, yeah, uh, and some much deeper than others. And it's such a cool, badass thing to have in your movie talking about your scars. I mean, who would have thought of that? And it's one of those things like when you're in high school and you want to be an actor, you're going to use that monologue, right? Or somebody you know is going to use that monologue and it's just Mm -hmm. copied over and over. But Robert Shaw in that scene, he is just, who is this guy and why isn't he in everything after this? Which we know why, but... Apparently he wanted to do the scene drunk, for real. Got drunk, did the scene, blew it, did horrible, kind of like passed out. Uh, they rapped for the day, and Shaw called Spielberg once he'd kind of sobered up and apologized, and well, you know, that didn't work. And according to Spielberg, they then set up the shot the next morning and did it in one take. It's another scene. I've, when I was a kid, I'm like, boring. Give me some of that action. Come on, that chum stuff that we just saw. Right. Uh-huh. You know. But as an adult, you're just like, your mind is blown. By it is. It, it is so bold. I agree. To have this movie that's supposed to be a blockbuster, it's supposed yeah. to be an audience pleaser, and you're going to put in a scene that is the intention of this scene is to make people stop eating their popcorn. Yeah, it's so good. And there's something about the way he's delivering it, his his voice, the way he sounds, yeah, his face, the emotion, you know? oh, yeah, in it that. It almost feels like he has never told this story before. Right. And he, he, he sees an opportunity now to get it off his chest finally mm-hmm. and does so and just like croaks it out. It just reminds me when you become friends with somebody, like you meet at a party or whatever, and you like hang out a couple times after that. But then there's a moment that something happens between the two of you, whether something somebody confesses something or whatever it is, you're just like, I know I'm going to be friends with that person yeah. forever. Mm-hmm. And that, at, like, after that, like you yeah. said, Eric, where it's just, like, there's this bond between these men yeah. after that. It know? is, I think that is the theme of this movie is the sort of male bonding, male mm-hmm. friendship. Because I think you're right on it, Eric, with we get these scenes where there's conflict between two of them and another one comes to the defense of the other. And everybody gets a win. And then in this scene, 
they all sort of literally bare their chests and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, open up a little bit to each other and really solidify this, I may not like you, it, you know, the, it could be right. disagreements, but there is a bond now, a brotherhood right. between these characters. I think also it's, it's, as an actor, it seems like it would be very alluring to go the route of by the end of the scene, Quint is is welling up with tears. Yeah. Um, but even like when he starts the monologue, he kind of has that that sailor smile to him. He just kind of is looking at him like, mm-hmm. yeah. And even like they're you know they've been laughing, having a good time. Hooper has the great joke about, eh, she broke my heart. Yeah, um, Brody even lifts up his shirt and. You mentioned maybe there is a backstory how yeah. he got shot because he, he's kind of fled New York. He was a cop in New yeah. York and couldn't handle it, like Somerset and Seven or something. Tell us and, if it's in the book. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but I thought maybe like, oh, Martin Brody's maybe just just milk toast enough that maybe it's like an appendix. Yeah, it could be <laughs> that he doesn't really have a scar to share with these guys. But really, the only way that these three men after that conversation and after the story of the indianapolis uh the only way they can kind of shake off that that dread of mortality uh is by singing i feel like at that moment all our characters are complete and they can complete their journey together um come hell or high water because this is the this is the end of the plot yeah yeah this is the end of any character building yeah because once they're singing the squalus is making his final play. And we all know shit's about to go down. Yeah, because we see, yeah. they're singing, and we kind of yeah. cut to the boards on the side, and right. you see yeah. the shark has hit. When I was re-watching this scene, I thought of all, I'm bringing up again, Tarantino's characters. He has one character in all his movies that has some sort of scar, and but, I imagine uh, them they're all together, you know, oh Aldo Rain talking goodness. about his throat, his, uh, what's Kurt Russell from Death Proof, Subman Mike. Yeah. You know, just all of them talking about like how they got their One stars. day, Tarantino <laughs> is going to write a one-hour scene between all of them. I would and he's going to put it on stage in L.A. and none of us are going to get to see it. I'm going to be pissed. We'll hear it on a podcast <laughs> by Variety Absolutely. or something. I know. This is, I do, I, I think this movie is in Tarantino's top ten of all time. I believe it, yeah. Jaws. And you can, you can feel an influence. Yeah. 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 Totally. Absolutely. And that's why, like, so... After this, that when things about when shit's about to go down, you feel connected to characters now. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, you're we already did because they're so real, but yeah. now you don't want anything to happen to these dudes because you're like right. you're friends now. You know? Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And now, shit gets real. Yeah. In the movie, it feels like this boat sinks in real time. <laughs> It's amazing. Every time. Yeah, it's I'm... amazing how much happens <laughs> yeah. after this because I'm like, well, movie's over, right? Yeah. Like, this is it. Yeah. But the shark attacks. <sighs> they try to go at it. They put the cage in the water to try to poison it. Yeah, this is one of the most stressful and uh, satisfying third acts I've, mm-hmm. I've ever seen and continues to be that way every single time I watch it. Yeah. Each one of them, really in their own way, has to has to face this shark in 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 different ways. Yeah, As Hooper, that's right. he is so on paper and research, and he, he says he's swam. You know, he's gotten in the water before with sharks and whatnot, but nothing like to this degree. Suddenly, right. that scene 
of him going over the remains of Chrissy is here. And he could become that now. And he's going into the water to face this shark. And we watch that happen. And he escapes. Um, And Quint, he faces that head on. And it seems like, it seems like since the night of the Indianapolis, he has just been on this death march, this almost Ahab from Moby Dick march to this moment of, I'm going to take this thing out. Yeah. Uh, and and he gives it everything he's got, but mm-hmm. somehow it is it is probably one of the most terrifying deaths on screen. Absolutely. And then, and then of yeah. course Brody has to face the shark as well. We'll get to that. It is, I but think, Quinn's like death. Ahab, <laughs> yeah. where it is a self fulfilling destiny mm-hmm. of like Quint since that day has been hunting sharks, daring them to kill him. Yeah. Uh, and this one does. And it sucks that he dies, but he has to die for the story, right? And but the way it went, like, the blood is gushing from his mouth. Oh, it's... And he's... Ah, ah, yeah. The way he's yelling, and yeah. the, the, the thing, the shark is just, like, trying to bring him down. Uh-huh. You're just like, what am I watching? It, you know? The, yeah. <laughs> the resistance that he has to it. To, uh, I, I honestly feel haunted by the sound design of that moment. But then Brody has to face the shark. Uh, by well, he goes up to the crow's nest, yeah. um, and so yeah, it's another great line in the film. Uh, right when he's about to shoot the shark, yeah. it explodes, and just the joy because it's it's also one of the greatest releases of tension in a film. Yeah. Uh, where it's finally done, it's it's the true like fist pump in the air moment, like yes, yeah. it's done, and. Man, our our joy matches that of, of Brody in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I love how the movie like ends thirty seconds after that. Right. Because right. usually movies now is like, okay, let's have one more scene where the, he's back at the beach, everything's like uh-huh. fine, you know, and it's like, okay. Or even like a, a movie that, that is in the same realm, he get back in the beach and it'd be like one year later and the right, kids are yeah. all back in the beach, Amity's great and uh and he's just sort of at the edge of the beach looking at it. And his wife is like, you should get in. We're all going in. Yeah. Yeah. And then he like, totally and then he like raises his foot to go in and just as his foot touches the water, it cuts to credits. Ba-da, ba-da, ba-da. <laughs> like, that, that would be the end of the movie now. <laughs> right. Today. Yeah. We got to talk about the last great moment, which is Hooper comes up. Yep. They celebrate. He just says, Quint. Schneider just shakes his head no. Yeah. I love that. I did too. Yeah. It's the it's one of my favorite endings. Yeah. At, like to me, that's the ending of the film. Yeah. And then the, you know, they're paddling back to shore and it's credits. Yeah. It's yeah. credits at that point. Other films should be copying this movie. Quint. No. Wednesday. Uh, it's Tuesday, I think. I think the tide's with us. 
hate the water. <laughs> I can't imagine why. After several re-releases, Jaws earned $260 million domestically. It earned $470 million total worldwide. Adjusted for inflation, this is $1.1 billion. So, in retrospect, what is the one reason this movie made so much money? And I have a couple candidates. The famous shot of Brody. John Williams. The Indianapolis monologue. Or the finale. I think it's the, at that time, the re- relatability. You would go on vacation and you'd go to some sort of beach. Mm-hmm. Everybody would do that, you know. Or maybe yeah. I'm just speaking from a Californian's perspective, you know, of that. But there's something about that. I think it definitely, I mean, you go to a summer movie and you're transported to a different world or to uh, this this spy mission or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And this one did it sort of interrupted your summer. We're like, uh, yeah, but the water and yeah. monsters in the water. It was such a domestic threat um, that you, 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 it's hard to ignore it. Um, yeah, it's it's like a seasonal movie. movie. Yeah. It's like a Christmas film coming out at Christmas. It is, to yeah. me, the most 4th of July movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's 4th of July is mentioned in the movie and it doesn't exactly happen in the movie. It does. I think we don't really see it. That day on the beach where they get attacked in the pond is the Fourth of July. Oh, yeah. okay. I'm not totally. Sh- they really don't say it. You're right, but I agree. It's the Fourth of July movie. I do kind of think it's all of them. I think this movie is very accessible, and it's really easy to explain why it's good, because you just list those things. You just, that brilliant shot of Brody. The John Williams music is so good. The Indianapolis monologue is just like. A critic's dream it's just such a fantastic scene that any film critic is gonna love it uh and then you know the shark explodes at the end yeah it's really easy to tell your friend why it was good i think it's really easy to talk about i agree it's really easy to pitch it to someone it's usually not put in the the category of like genre bending but it's a 50s creature feature done with a little bit more a lot more prestige and i think there's a quality to it where it's an easy sell for almost everyone. To someone that doesn't like horror films, you'd be like, yeah, but listen, it's not really a horror film. Or to someone that like, oh, that looks like it's just kind of an adult drama. No, but a shark explodes. Like, yeah. there's all these things, these exceptions to genres in the film mm-hmm. that you can kind of pull more people in to watch it. Yeah, it's also a movie, an older movie that doesn't feel like an old movie. You ever like watch an older movie like, oh my gosh, I heard... French Connection is a classic, and you watch yeah. it, and you're just like, oh, man, this is a lot slower than I would have thought, or something, right. cycle, right? The Sound of Music. Yeah, sure, yeah. Lawrence of Arabia, you go back. Yeah, and you're just old. like, oh, there's, there's... at that time, I could see why people were enthralled with that, but Jaws moves really fast, you yeah. know? Even though it has those slow moments, it, it's easy to get somebody hooked into that, you know. And I think Spielberg is aware of those beats because of being a fan of comics and those serialized things and horror movies, yeah. bringing that into Jaws. In retrospect, is this Steven Spielberg's best film? One of his best. It, sometimes when I talk about Jaws, I'm, I, my mind goes to, is this the best film ever made? Uh, yeah. It's so good. Every time I watch it, so I wonder that. So you're saying he peaked. Right off the bat. 
that he gets a few small projects and then he knocks this one out of the park. I, I mean, personally, I like Raiders, E.T., Jurassic Park uh, more than this movie. But I think it's fourth I th- on my list for Spielberg. Yeah, I think it. I, I think it's its best. It, it's, it's hard to deny. Best, it just yeah. the circumstances of the movie, the level of hit that it was, that it changed the industry as much as it did. Yeah, it's incredible. I think I always have to look at Spielberg with a divide down the middle of there is his fantastical. Yeah. And then there is his historical. Right. And I think this is the absolute best we've ever gotten of his fantastical. Yeah. E.T. and Jurassic Park are so close. And Raiders are so, yeah. so close. And they're almost all there bunched together. But just above them mm-hmm. is Jaws. Of his historical, yeah, it's it's the color purple with Schindler's List. Obviously, Schindler's List is his best. Uh, yeah. Saving Private Ryan. But I think I have to look at it that way because it's almost offensive to another part of me that's like yeah but schindler's list exists and so jaws is not that's totally best. true and i'm kind of forgetting about it now but if, yeah. you're totally right that there's spielberg your friend and spielberg your dad yes and i love the spielberg your friend movies right. like et and jaws and jurassic park and i also love the spielberg your dad movies like schindler's list and i love lincoln despite a problematic ending Mm-hmm. Uh, and other films, Bridge of Spies and Catch Me If You Can, which is kind of a cross between the two. When I was doing my, my dive into the behind-the-scenes stuff, so the Orca boat, one of them, was restored, and it was brought from Martha's Vineyard to Universal Studios. And it stayed, and they built, like, a, I think part of it was, part of the movie was filmed here, either pickup shots or something. But eventually they built Amity uh, Harbor, and it was used in other movies, the other Jaws sequels, but it was there for a tourist attraction. And the orca sat there. And Spielberg, apparently, he would go to the Universal lot uh, when he had an office there. He would kind of sneak over and make sure there were no tourists, and he would climb aboard the orca, and he would just sit in that cabin and just sort of think about his career. But it's really interesting to me that even from his own perspective, he made two other features before this, but it's this one that he really considers the start of his career and that he uses as a reflection point for all of his his preceding work. But I, I guess uh, he came back one of the times and it was gone. And he like called up Universal Studios and uh, as he describes it, the, the poor person that answered the phone got like a whole mouthful from him. Like, where's the boat? What happened to it? He finally got an answer of like it was rotting. We had to get rid of it, and he kind of used that as a as a a point where he said to himself, you know, okay, this is the start of a whole other part of my career. Should this should Jaws have been the highest grossing movie of nineteen seventy five? I don't know what else came out. I not a lot. Not you. a lot that has like, you know, is is long lasting. Obviously, Jaws should be. It's just yeah. commercially viable. It's a great movie, but. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest came out that year. Yep. And it, it's the critical success. Yeah. And I think Jaws broke the mold a little bit in that way that it was marketed differently. It got a wide release opening weekend, which was unusual. That back in that day, it, movies kind of got marketed the way that Oscar movies do these days, where they start in a couple of theaters and they build buzz as they slowly roll out to the rest of the country 
saying this is a prestige movie you got to go see it and so a lot of the time those movies were the ones that made the most money because they got the word of mouth and critical success was like paramount to that so the godfather was the highest grossing movie of his year according to wikipedia the sting was the highest grossing movie of 1973 though i'm not sure that's accurate because the exorcist is legendary for its box office but uh, all the big movies every year were kind of the big oscar contenders Mm -hmm. So I'd go to say, yeah. like, if we were at the end of 1975, it would be, it's kind of surprising One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest didn't make more money than Jaws. Jaws is such a juggernaut that it's breaking that mold. Right. Yeah. I would say it, it's the one that has the highest, uh, the widest appeal. Um, yeah. So and it's the, the rest of that year is The Iger Sanction, The French Connection 2, uh, Barry the Lyndon. The Iger Sanction is a John Williams score. What a year. What a year. Barry Lyndon, Stanley Kubrick, uh, Dog Day Afternoon, which is uh, Sidney Lumet, Nashville, which is Robert Altman, Money Python and the Holy Grail, uh, Terry Gilliam, movie. Rocky Horror Picture Show, yeah. which is on like a whole other level of success because yeah. it's not really necessarily box office success, but it is today the second highest grossing yeah. film of 1975. Yeah, That's but funny. I'm sure it hadn't. It probably didn't yeah. even get there until. You know, the 2000s, I bet. Right. Uh, And then uh, Stepford Wives, the original Stepford Wives, um, the the Who picture, Tommy, uh, and then obviously Nicholson had a career, you know, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest really um, launched his career. Not launched it. Really cemented him as a star. Pushed it into a a new level. Earned him an Oscar. And he also was in The Passenger as well that year. So those are the kind of movies you're looking at this year, that year. And I think Jaws... I think it speaks a lot about what type of movies came out because you had these and then you had, you know, a couple more layers and then you had like whatever live action movie Disney was coming out with. Yeah. Uh, with a TV star in it or whatnot, like stuff that we just completely forget about now, because honestly, a lot of times it's worth forgetting about. Yeah. 1975 is still a day, still an era where. Uh, commercial success was enough to get you critical acclaim and awards attention. Mm-hmm. Jaws did get nominated for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Should Jaws have won Best Picture? One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is what won. Yeah, I mean, if Jaws wins... Jaws is... I, I, I'll say it. Jaws is way better than One Flew Over the Cuckoo's sure. Nest. I love One Flew Over the sure. Cuckoo's Nest. But would we it's have... not a contest. Would we have Jack Nicholson? Oh, definitely. You still he think had already Jack... been in like five Easy Pieces and Easy Rider. Sure. And yeah, but... Had, like he was a, a big star and it, it still would have been a but huge ba- movie. But back then, when you win an Oscar, it meant something and you he were could still in win movies. the Oscar. So you're just saying best yeah. picture. Yeah. Because it is worth noting that One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest won like the big yeah, four. exactly. Big five. Big yeah. five, sorry. Picture, director, screenplay, actor, actress. Which had not been done in decades. Exactly. It had not been done since uh, it happened one night. Yeah, I don't know. I, I would have to rewatch One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest to judge it on its I did. Re- I rewatched it like a week ago, and it's a really good movie. It's, it's well done. It's very modern. It's got right. a great ensemble cast. Um, it's really, really good performances. Um, Milos Forman? Milos Forman was okay. a great director. Uh, and I can understand it, you know, why One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest won. Mm-hmm. But I do think in retrospect, clearly Jaws yeah, is Jaws, the biggest yeah. movie of this yeah. year, critically and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it it would beat it 
in a vote now. It won three of its four nominees. It just didn't win Best Picture. It won score, editing, and picture. Wow, those are the ones, too. I I think Spielberg got snubbed for director. Yeah? Because uh, just the stories from the set, just the legend that it is, Spielberg managed to salvage what should have been a train wreck. And it also kind of got snubbed for screenplay, I think. This is called commercial backlash. Right. I don't know if anybody knows the word commercial backlash, no, but when a film a... when a film yeah, makes a lot of right. money, people resent it. Everybody they do. Everybody loves a winner, right. but nobody loves a winner. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Should Jaws have won the Palme d'Or? I don't think it was in the no. festival. No. No. What is it? Yeah. No. no, I don't have a, a good enough yeah. radar on. Mm-hmm. The big picture of what wins the Palme d'Or. I know Parasite won this year. Tree of yeah. Life won uh, in 2011. The winner in 1975 was Chronicle of the Years of Fire. Mm. It's an Algerian film wow. about their war for independence. But uh, they did not. The Oscars also snubbed that one. I've never heard uh, of it. Yeah, I think Joe should have won. Okay. The Palme d'Or? <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever. You know what? Give one flew over the cuckoo's nest the Palme d'Or. Don't know if he was even at Cannes, but... Give it that and give Jaws Best Picture. It is. I do think 1975, though, is an interesting year of looking at whether or not critics really do have an eye for the, you know, most meritous films. Sure. Because I would argue that films like Nashville and Dog Day Afternoon that were nominated for Best Picture have not really survived. And I think a, a critical success should be something that survives it is i think critics can foresee that but the academy does not foresee that they're always terrible at that or they're not playing that game because they're just so stuck in their ways of like well when i worked in the movie business this is how it was and i'm gonna stick to this thing that i'm used to voting for right Mm -hmm. i mean it is funny that we look at just the small list of movies I, i listed in 1975 and the ones that are just everyday pop culture pop culture talk is the blockbuster and the two cult films the two yeah. cult classics that uh, yeah the Monty Python movie and Rocky Horror yeah that everyone and, everyone can quote Monty Python people are still going to screenings of Rocky Horror and everyone loves jaws and those three films i would argue have had more of an impact on the artistic side of cinema than any of the other films that critics loved in that sure. year. Sure. Maybe not Monty Python. That's just I, a funny yeah. movie. Well, it's had a lot, yeah. I don't I think, think Monty Python had a lot is... of effect on comedy, I think. Oh, yeah. I, I don't yeah. particularly think on any technical level that film is is amazing. That's but very true. In fact, it's actually a pretty hard movie to sit down and watch. It's a very, like, cleaning dishes because you've watched it a million times before kind of movie. But, man, everyone knows how to quote it. So, the answer to this one is obvious. It'll be less obvious in future podcasts. Is Jaws still around today? Yes. What's its legacy? Yeah. Big time. Score. I have things oh, to say. Yeah. Yes. AFI had it number 48 on their 1998 list, number 56, 2008. Again, speaking to how the critics missed this movie. Because right. here we are, many decades later, all agreeing it's one of the greatest ever made. Launched the career of one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Solidified the John Williams is the greatest film composer of all time. Established the summer blockbuster. Uh, Tarantino, as mentioned, has it in his top ten. 
I think a lot of people would put it yeah. in their top ten. So on it's it's almost this is where Jaws almost splits into two different categories here of like, oh, cool blockbuster Jaws and like cinema classic Jaws. All yeah. the things you listed are like cinema classic Jaws. So on the blockbuster side, mm-hmm. it sparked three sequels. I have not seen any of the Jaws sequels. I saw one of them, and it's not Jaws 2 or 3D. Sorry. <laughs> nice. The one I have seen, 1987, Jaws the Revenge. Lorraine Gary returns. She is stalked by a shark, or the shark. It's probably not the same shark, because I think they keep killing it. But I think we're supposed to believe it's the same shark from 2 and 3? Not sure. Michael Caine comes in as the love interest. Oh, yeah. uh, Brody is dead it, through picture form. They're like, oh, yeah, Dad died. And there's a picture of him. Like, like Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystals. Very much so. Oh, Dad's dead. Uh, the movie opens with one of the Brody sons dying. It's very clear that was supposed to be Brody, but uh, uh, Roy Schneider was like, I'm not doing this. It's very clearly filmed at the Universal backlot. Um, and the movie is basically they go to the Bahamas, believe it's the Bahamas, and the shark follows them there. And Michael Caine has famously said about the movie uh, that he didn't see the film, but he loves his beach house. So <laughs> that's where his head was at nice. with the sequels. And then this movie shamelessly echoes that table scene that we all gushed over, where uh-huh. a son of Brody, who looks suspiciously like more like Richard Dreyfus than Roy Schneider, I don't know why, uh, does the whole thing at the table where he's sad and his kid mimics it. And it's just, it's so, the whole movie is just, you didn't hear the original voice, but you're only hearing the echo, the sad echo uh-huh. of what was a person. It's very sad I think and pitiful. I think that Jaws is interesting because of how well it has survived its sequels. That not even the, these sequels, which are universally disliked, Right. could tarnish it where i feel like a movie like the matrix if you it's equally groundbreaking yeah. but when you bring it up everybody has to comment on all oh, those well those horrible sequels yeah. and it's just like the sequels have ruined the ability to love the original in some ways Do you think and jaws because, feels immune to that maybe because it's just older and people aren't aware of that it could be you know? yeah. yeah i found some quotes from spielberg on jaws 2 Mm-hmm. And the reason he didn't, because he said he had done the definitive shark movie, and he said I would have done the sequel if I hadn't had such a horrible time at sea on the first film. So Interesting. He hated filming That's it, fun. basically. That's a really good point to bring up. And I agree with Freddie. It might be the age. It might be just our age of like we grew up and we weren't even told about the sequels because they're not good. Whereas something like Star Wars. It's supposed to all exist in this one continuous mm-hmm. saga. And so the sequels or every single movie in that saga is burdened by another movie in that saga, unfortunately or right. fortunately. Yeah. But I agree. It has very successfully like kind of kicked off. It's also noteworthy that at this time it was almost more popular. Not that this is a prestige Oscar film. I think it's a really good film that happened to get its due at the Oscars, not an Oscar bait film. But it was more common at the time for these movies, uh, Oscar movies, to get a sequel. The Exorcist Absolutely. got a sequel. The Godfather got sucks. a sequel. The, well, yes, The Godfather, of course. Sequel. But so did French Connection. French Connection, too. The Sting yeah. got a sequel. Psycho. Psycho got a sequel. <laughs> yeah. It was snubbed at the Oscars, though. <laughs> well. 
The next number one film that we will review on the number one film podcast is Rocky. I'm I'm actually really stoked about this. Me too. I, I need Rocky. to rewatch it. I haven't I seen Rocky. it in many years, maybe a decade. Yeah. No joke. I YouTube the end all the time. It's a great ending. Once a month, I will. I love watch that score that. too. Oh, yeah, gets me pumped. Well, join us next time for that. Otherwise, we are signing off for the number one movie podcast.